stand afraid, but cannot show. Of that we see, but cannot know. Welcome to Rite of Passage, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Caleb Evans. And I'm Jonathan Martin. We are two individuals with writing degrees who thought, what better use of our knowledge outside of maybe a salaried position or something, than to go out and make a podcast about not just writing, but also the whole oeuvre of storytelling, especially how storytelling is something that can really transcend medium. So that includes, at least for us, are what we believe to be the three main contemporary pillars of storytelling. Yeah, your literature, obviously your written word, but you also got your movies and TV. That is the word as seen. And then you have video games, which serve as the word, the in, encountered, a immersed word, the engaged word. We read the word, we see the word, see and hear the word, and then we actively engage with the word. And that is essentially how we see all storytelling today. Those are the three primary spokes of our podcast here at Rite of Passage. Uh, John, you want to introduce the topic today? Sure. Uh, We're going to be talking a little bit today about H.P. Lovecraft, and the title of this episode is Make Lovecraft, Not War. Uh, So we'll be talking a little bit about his legacy as an author and his influence on science fiction and horror genres, uh, as well as some complications and controversies about the man that he was and some of the ideology that he held and put into his stories, uh, as well as talking about influences that we've recently encountered, uh, Caleb and I have recently encountered, that are good examples of some of his creativity at play, even though he is not the final author of these particular works. Indeed. In fact, that serves as a very good transition into the next section here, which is Lovecraft, the uh, the guy, the man, the person. Because behind every storyteller, story, or like, is a full storyteller. And well, sometimes you can just like, talk about the story and give the storyteller no mind, though we wouldn't personally recommend it. Um, Lovecraft, knowing about him, is almost as essential as understanding his works, as sometimes they both can be one and the same. But but I digress. Well, H.P. Lovecraft, the man, was born in Providence, Rhode Island. Grew up to a fairly well-off family that had, let's just say, a full spade of bad luck when it came to managing their own finances. But he, they were still relatively well-to-do when he first came into their household and was born. Now, Lovecraft, probably due to the restrictive nature of his parents, his father and his mother, did not get a chance to really go outside and hang out and play with the other Amherst boys and 
Did it say Amherst? Sorry, Providence. Like, places out there. He didn't have a chance to play like little kids should. And if there's anything we have learned about posthumous Michael Jackson that we can apply here, it's that if you take a kid and stop him from being a kid, he's just going to try and find a way to become a kid when he's an adult. And, well, H.P. Lovecraft did not exactly pull a Michael Jackson here. He did find a way to try and grasp onto that childhood in his own racist, messed up way. But it all started with the access to his father's library. And the young Lovecraft was a voracious lover of literature. Couldn't get enough. Read oh, pretty much every book in his dad's library. Well, eventually time moved on. Lovecraft, already kind of scared of the tenuous position of his parents' finances, married an heiress, and moved to New York. But that whole vision of just the dream city, New York, that is often sold to us mainly by New York, to Lovecraft, it was a terrible cosmic nightmare. All he had ever known was town of Providence and the general type of person who lives in Providence at that time. But now he was in this place right around the time, or like right after the time that we had that whole influx of immigration, you know, the new Colossus, the poem, not, not the game. The game is excellent, but that's neither here nor there. You know, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. And of course, Lovecraft, due to his upbringing, had never really encountered tired, poor, or huddled massive anything. So he hated New York. In fact, his fears of these tired, huddled masses yearning to be free was how he got the inspiration for a lot of his stories, unfortunately, as well as a lot of his characters and his themes. Eventually, either his wife died or divorced him. Lovecraft went back to the one place he believed he could be perfectly safe. Providence, Rhode Island, curled up in a ball, Occasionally wide writing stories and watching as his family fortune slipped away until he ended up dying. Penniless. Now I'm going to turn over to John here to talk about what exactly it was about H.P. Lovecraft that has made him such a controversial written figure today and why despite all this he has not exactly been quote-unquote canceled because of his contributions to literature. You can take away, John. Yeah. So, uh, probably the, the, the biggest controversial thing about uh, Lovecraft is, is his, this deeply held racism. Um, part of this is probably uh, a, a uh, product mm -hmm. of the time period, right? Um, being born in the late 1800s and, and living into the early um, the 1900s uh, wasn't exactly a time of 
racial equality, uh, and and he certainly leaned hard on the side of um, the superior races, uh, whiteness, right? A deep fear, uh, deep fear, misunderstanding, um, or even hatred towards towards blackness uh, and black people. So uh, that certainly makes it a little more complicated than just kind of accepting all the things that he wrote or created uh, without kind of critically eyeing who he was as a creator as an artist uh because a lot of times right art is uh thing our, our ideology um put into the world in some way right it's, it's our creation yeah, and it's yeah. hard not to put some of ourselves or what we think about the world into the things that we create so uh while while lovecraft was very is maintains his status as an extremely influential writer and creator of uh, cosmic horror, or at least uh, if he didn't create it, he certainly uh, drove it into uh, popularity. Um, the cosmic horror, right? But but he didn't, it's not like he didn't fill some of those stories with depictions of non-white spaces and practices and people um in a terrible lights, right? Uh, there's a section in the Call of Cthulhu, one of his uh, one of his famous stories, where a sheriff is investigating a swamp in Louisiana, and they have to go to this se- this place, this area that white people never go. And there's all this language about how awful and disgusting it is, and how the people there are practicing voodoo and having orgies and and everything's just dark and grimy and gross and disgusting and it's cult it's a cultish um and it's worshiping this ancient evil being and it just kind of paints this whole picture of Mm. this area this non-white space and this horrible light specifically if i don't you don't mind cutting in go for it voodoo Especially the Louisiana variant would especially be frightening to H.P. Lovecraft because the only thing that is scarier to white supremacists than, well, black people or any and all minorities, it's those minorities intermarrying with white women. Mm-hmm. And in essence, Louisiana Vodou, if you're not exactly aware, well, it stems originally from West African shamanism, as all variants of voodoo do. And it's like that, too, in, like, Haiti. But in Louisiana, not only do they get that West African shamanism with papalegla and all that stuff, they actually fused it with Roman Catholicism. And, you know, from the perception of someone like Lovecraft, even if he... He didn't really say if he was Protestant or Catholic, but... He viewed, viewed, like most people in the U.S. probably viewed uh, Roman Catholicism as a very, very white religion. So to see a white religion like a pure white maiden mix with something from West African, in essence being ideologically um, assaulted and abused, at least from his perspective, then that was probably incredibly terrifying for Lovecraft, which is why voodoo is so often a object of terror in his works. 
Right. All right. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, yeah, moving on. Uh, now, as we stated at the beginning of the episode, one of the main pillars or me- mediums of storytelling, we believe, is through video games. Because art is not just something that you read or view slash listen to. The video games are essentially that third level of actively engaging with the themes and the narratives that are put forth in storytelling. So we're going to start off with Lovecraft like in games and in relation to games. So there aren't really any good games based directly licensed on Lovecraft's work. The two most notable ones are probably the, the Sinking City and Call of Cthulhu, which is the short story that John mentioned earlier. The thing is, is that the Lovecraft estate has kind of taken a sort of a throw everything at the wall and see what sticks and hopefully something sticks approach to at least video games. I heard the tabletop is okay, but the video games that have come and spawned out of the Cthulhu mythos, at least as far as licensed right. products concerned, have not been good. If you're familiar with the games industry, you're probably also familiar with another property that has this problem. Games Workshop's uh, Warhammer 40k. Mm. It has arguably one of the deepest lores that I have ever encountered. But the problem is right. that they will, yeah, the problem is they will let just anybody come in and do a game about the property. As a result, the only two, really the only two that I know of, like games that are considered like at least somewhat decent, are like Warhammer 40k Space Marine and uh, Warhammer 40k Space Hulk or something like that. And all the rest are just not worth it at all. And, I mean, it's a real shame considering that lore. And that that whole transfers all over to Lovecraft, too. You got all this great lore. I mean, great as in, like, high quality. But the way they handle the IP makes it so that you're not really going to get any good works directly based on Lovecraft stories. Not, this is not things, yet, anyway. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But this is where things get interesting. Even though there are no, like, decent titles that are based directly on Lovecraft's work and the actual licensed IP, there are plenty of games out there that manage to take the themes and the atmosphere of Lovecraft. And because they have all this freedom to work with it, create products that in some cases may even surpass the original Lovecraft games that they are getting like inspiration from. And two, there are three examples here. I'm going to cover two and then we'll we'll toss it over to John for the third one. All right. The first one is probably the one that is the most in your face about like it being Lovecraft and that's Fallout, specifically Fallout's four, three and four. In the third Fallout game, there is a building in the wasteland called uh, the Dunwich Building. This is the building that houses the corporation, the Dunwich Borers, 
which is a represent which is a reference to another Lovecraft property, uh, the Dunwich Horror, done in clever pun form. Well, the main point here, long story short, you get to the building, you look at some of the computer monitors like you usually do to parse out the lore, and you watch as these employees gradually get more and more insane as they continue to dig down deeper and deeper until eventually they've got this uh, obelisk that looks like it could have been created by Lovecraft himself. The concept, not the not the obelisk. He'd have to actually get out of the house to build one of those. <laughs> um, well, anyways. Anyway, so they find this obelisk, and yeah, they all get turned into... Uh, Feral ghouls, which would have happened anyways, but I think it accelerated the process. Experiencing the the uh, obelisk thing, kind of like a reverse monolith from 2000: Space Odyssey. 20,000 was it 2001: A Space Odyssey? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. And, That's the one. And then it regresses people rather than progresses people, and. Uh, the next one that we're going to be looking at is actually even more interesting if you look at it from a certain perspective, because not only is there another Dunwich Borers section of the game, now it's just actually a quarry, and you go in through the quarry and, you know, oh, the logs are crazy, turns out there's something down there, blah, 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 blah. But one of the Lovecraft references is an actual direct reference to a Lovecraft short story called The Pikmin Method. While you're wandering around the streets of post-apocalyptic Boston, you find yourself in a situation where there's a bunch of bandits and thugs looking to try and get into this man's house. You... Having nothing better to do, go through and slaughter all of the uh, bandits that are going after him. Then you actually go and find the person. His name is Pikmin. But his, I guess, USP, if you want to apply that as a dark concept, is that he paints portraits out of his victim's blood. And Pretty again, twisted. this is. Yeah, for sure. And that's basically the entire narrative of the Lovecraft short story, The Pikmin Model. Furthermore, if you ever find yourself on YouTube and you have the time, on the YouTube channel Alter, there is a short film called The Pikmin Method. And it's done like in the format of a, almost like a Bob Ross video. And hmm. I'd uh, just personally just recommending that. <laughs> if you happen to be in the neighborhood. And now we get to our third... Right. Wait, wait. What enough of Fallout? Let's look at the... I guess I would say probably the most direct, if there wasn't the whole Pikmin thing. This is in the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim Sinborn. You, of course, are the Dragonborn, but these peoples are coming up to you and saying that you are not the Dragonborn. So off you go to the island of Solstheim, which is just north of Vardenfell, which is where the third game, Morrowind, takes place. But everything seems off as soon as you step off the docks in 
in true shadow over intimate fashion. Only this isn't New England, this is Tamriel. But again, in a very literal sense, that's neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> so you, uh, you get up there at the beach, and after you've gone a bit of the way into the island of Solstein, which is something that you probably want to get started on right away whenever you're playing a Bethesda game, you find, surprise, an obelisk and people worshipping at the obelisk. Only this time, there's a book. You go in, and you find this book, and you read this book, and all of a sudden, you're in a plane of oblivion called Apocrypha, which where the sky is green, and the sea is made out of some kind of weird goo, and there are tentacles all over the place, which, for those of you who are familiar with Lovecraft, tentacles are something that show up quite a bit in his works. And we haven't even actually gotten to the guy who's in control of this particular play. A Daedric mm. prince named Hermaeus Mora, whose form is nothing but a bunch of eyes and tentacles collected together. He is the Daedric prince of forbidden knowledge. And specifically, if any should dare to try and read this forbidden knowledge, they will go insane, and eventually they'll end up being these things called speakers who wander around in Apocrypha, and they usually take out any of the newcomers that try to come in via Black Book. And honestly, if you had told me this story without telling me it was Elder Scrolls, I would have been like, oh, it sounds like a Lovecraft short story. <laughs> That's how right. close it relates to the original kind of master himself. I don't know. And for this final bit of the uh, video game section, I'm going to turn this over to John with Control. Yeah. Uh, I'll talk about a little bit, little bit about 2019's Control by Remedy Entertainment. Uh, features a story kind of revolving around uh, a woman named Jessie who's arriving for her first day at work at the Federal Bureau of Control. Uh, this mm. is kind of a shadow government organization that kind of keeps everything shrouded in darkness and mystery. And their their main goal-ish that she kind of uncovers as she traverses the inside of their larger on the inside than on the outside building is that they are very similar to the real online community but fictional organization called the SCP Foundation, which stands for... Secure, uh, Contain, Protect. Yeah, Secure, Contain, Protect, um, which is not a Lovecraft creation. SCP is not create, was not created by Lovecraft. However, the concept behind this online community, the SCP, is very Lovecraftian in that it's all these stories about objects or beings or, or places that are strange or, or horrific or cosmically powered or supernatural in some undefinable way. But the kind of fake goal of this community is to find and document these things. Uh, mm. The Federal Bureau of Control in this video game is very, very similar to that. They are a government 
arm with the task of controlling and containing these objects that seem to be interdimensional or have supernatural powers. Uh, there seem to be rifts where beings from another dimension can come through and cause havoc, uh, usually around these objects. And as Jesse um, you know, clears out more and more of this place. She uncovers more and more of the mystery of what their original goal was in the first place. She discovers an entire plot revolving her brother. Uh, she revol you know, uncovers mysteries involving the prior director of the Federal Bureau of Control. She encounters an entity from that is otherworldly and has to find out the proper way to deal with this entity in a way that benefits her and keeps people safe. Um, the art direction for this game is fantastic. Uh, there's not a lot of tentacles, um, but you don't need tentacles to be Lovecraftian. Uh, I think we kind of hinted at this earlier, but uh, it's a lot of dread and, and fear of the unknown and especially supernatural or otherworldly things, ancient knowledge, secret knowledge, ancient beings of ancient power, um, or even cosmic power. It doesn't even have to be mm. old. It could just be uh, alien to, to planet Earth. Uh, and so that the, this game control kind of revolves heavily around this organization, this shadow organization that seems to be trying and failing to keep control over these otherworldly objects and entities and yeah. jesse uh has to move through it all and solve the mystery and understand these people that she's working with or maybe yeah. working alongside um fantastic game definitely one of For the sure. best ones of 2019 easily so well, uh, well uh, worth well worth a play indeed i want to mention something about that theme I think yeah. I tried to encapsulate that best when I did my little couple of thing at the beginning, the uh, whole that which you can see but cannot know. I mean, probably the yeah. scariest thing we can encounter on Earth is something that we should be able to understand and comprehend, but we aren't able to. Frustrates yes. the hell out of you, you know? It's really and frustrating. <laughs> it's like within your grasp, but just out of reach. And again, they, things aren't supposed to be like that. And so they kind of goes into a little bit of the uncanny valley territory or the territory that's at least adjacent to like the uncanny valley. If the uncanny valley is like downtown LA, then this, whatever this is, is the San Fernando Valley. It's a bit of a West Coast mm. reference, but yeah. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah. So we're going to wrap up today with actually a bit of fortuitousness that happened upon us in that the literary term, our literary pillar and the video TV pillar have managed to coincide with this next choice, which is the show... Lovecraft Country. And uh, I think I'll let John yep. take this one. Yeah, uh, Lovecraft Country, um, the show on HBO, debuted in 2020, uh, based on or adapting the novel by Matt Ruff, 
which released in 2016. So the concept is is basically a uh, young man who's a science fiction fan, of course, uh, kind of discovers that there's this ancient magic and this ancient white family who kind of controls or has been leaders for this powerful cult uh, for many years, go, even going back to, um, to to owning slaves. And they, in the, the quote-unquote present day, which is in the 60s, are trying to obtain uh, knowledge in a knowledge and the ability to cast a spell of immortality uh, which ends up requiring human sacrifice of some kind to some degree and he gets wrapped up in this family's drama and his family gets wrapped up in this drama um, and it's it's showcasing right real world racial politics of the time of his his family who are all black traveling the country driving through and trying to avoid sundown towns uh one of the early episodes features an incredibly scary sequence of events where they're the family is at a cafe in an unfriendly and racist town and they are run out of the cafe essentially um driving out trying to outrace the sun falling as a racist sheriff and his gang of thugs chase them out of the county because if they're there after sundown the rules change uh and it, it kind of uses Lovecraftian creatures like the Shogoths or th or themes uh, about ancient knowledge and ancient books of power and magic uh, and kind of uses them to showcase the dangers of of racism, of the of the violence that was put upon black people in this country. Um yeah. And it, that's the scariest part. It's not the magic. It's not the horror. It's not the creatures. Uh, it's it's the racism. One of the most terrifying sequences in the whole show, uh, a cop who's part of this cult, a sheriff who's part of this cult, um, he's ended up had having his, uh, I don't know how to say it, he's had his body replaced with a black man's body, but a white man's head. And he has this terrifying alley encounter with a young girl who's part of the protagonist's family. And he tries to get information from her and then casts a spell on her to where twisted versions of herself follow her around town and try to kill her. Um, it's very, very scary. It's probably the most unsettling sequence, especially these other twisted versions of her following her around town with a specific mm. musical motif. Uh, it's very unsettling to watch, but this show's main scare by far is, is the racism. And it's not, and this is a fictitious portrayal. They can't even properly convey the fear or convey the danger uh, that black people were mm -hmm. would have experienced at that time and place, and in some places still can continue to experience even today. It's not something I can personally relate to. I've not been victimized for the color of my skin, but this show certainly helped me learn a little bit more about what that experience feels like. 
uh, or what it what it might have looked like in some time and place. That bit that he opened uh, my mind a little bit. Yeah, that mo that moment that uh, John mentioned early, a bit earlier in this particular section where he talked about the uh, sundown town and racing like away from the thingies to make sure mm. they're not caught at night. Well. That is something that I recently discovered is a lot closer to home than I probably am comfortable with. Uh, north of my uh, town, I live in a place called Bullhead City, which is up in northwestern Arizona in a county called uh, Mojave County. Just north of us is uh, the town of Kingman. It's where the it's where the county seat is. It's where a lot of the uh, I think the county courts up there too, something like that. Now. I did not know this for most of the time I have lived in Bullhead and gone up to Kingman several times. But a couple mm -hmm. of months ago, I was looking at a directory of sundown towns in the United States. Most of them have stopped being sundown towns, of course. But the one that caught my intention was Kingman. Not but a few hours north of where I live, there was a sign that said, don't let the sun go down on you, N-word. This wasn't just, this wasn't something that was like off in the southeast, way in the past. I don't think the sign came down until like the mid-2000s. And this was a place I had been that I knew that I even like recognized people from that town this whole time. And no one did anything about it. So for a period of time, if you were kind of a racial minority and someone caught you out after sundown, they could essentially lynch you and no one would care. So it's kind of sad when you realize that the evil you have to confront is one that is actually, or at least was actually in your backyard. Liter quite literally. Quite literally indeed. So I guess... Uh, Insane. Well, the ultimate thing though here obviously is you definitely need to watch the show or read the book or, you know what, do both just because the yeah. book covers a little extra stuff that the show doesn't necessarily cover. But, I mean, outside of that, it's really accurate. So you're going to get the basic idea whether you read the book or watch the uh, show. But, yeah, definitely check it out. It's on H yeah. The show's on HBO Max, and you can find the book for cheap digitally or like uh physically like in like a paperback form or something like that so yes that's our definite recommendation to you guys who are absolutely mm -hmm. and so in conclusion here ultimately in literature you're going to find a whole bunch of significant figures that I mean, in many cases, are even considered offensive people, even by their own standards of efficiency in the era they lived in. 
Unfortunately, though, those people often coincide with a fair amount of genius or cleverness or whatever. Mm-hmm. So if someone asks you about H.P. Lovecraft, I guess my recommendation would just be recognize his significance in the American literary tradition, but never forget to include yeah. that asterisk about his racism and how that really affected his works. Right. And maybe use it as inspiration to find other writers to read. Yeah, for sure. Um, Just because he's a major influence doesn't mean that there aren't other equally or even more talented people out there creating amazing things. Exactly. I mean, Uh, many, many of whom are people he would have hated or marginalized. Yeah, exactly. Uh, It's important to, to keep ideas and uh, diverse and, and and bring into our minds and minds stories from other sources. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually, uh, you know, that kind of brings in something I like to call uh, the Freud effect or whatever. In that Sigmund Freud, mm-hmm. it was wrong on a whole lot of stuff, but for some reason he is still respected. <laughs> right. He is still respected, not necessarily because he is, was right all the time. He was respected because he was. It said that we needed psychoanalysis. So even though the first right. step was something more of a stumble than anything else, if he had not taken that first step, people like Young and other fellows would not have come along and helped refine the whole skill of psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of like how right. the guy that invented the wheel, well, he didn't exactly invent the convertible or the SUV, but if he hadn't made that wheel, none of the innovation we see today would have ever happened, including electric vehicles and things like that. Right. So I guess that call, That's true. I guess it all kind of wraps it up then. Uh, this has been a rite of passage. I'm Caleb Evans. And I'm Jonathan Martin. See you next time. Yeah, catch you in the next one.